Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome back to The Inforium, a show about productivity, personal finance, business, but not about overthinking. Not unlike my friend Ali Abdal's podcast, Not Overthinking. Check that out and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Anyway, what's up, Martin? I'm just chilling in this basement, recording an episode of The Inforium. It is a pretty cool basement. Not even my mom's basement. It's my basement. Yeah. Nah, it's my landlord's basement. I wish I could record in my mom's basement. I mean, you could. You literally could do that. There is a sequence of steps you could follow to arrive at that destination. All right. <laughs> okay. Next I am not going to. live from my mom's basement. There you go. Actually, I used to follow a podcast, uh, and I cannot for the life of me remember the name right now. Oh, Stacking Benjamins. And uh, they always would say that they were recording live from mom's basement. I'm pretty sure they weren't actually. It's probably just the name of their office. You put it on the paperwork. That's true. Yeah. Mom's Basement LLC. Yeah. I guarantee you Someone that, has it. that must exist. Certainly. Okay, I'm not going to wear these headphones the whole time. I just wanted to use these to monitor because... I'm going to be honest. I got a little lax with the podcast tech setup over the past forever. Oh, no. Well, the pandemic hit, and we were like, I guess we're going well, to not be in the studio anymore. We're going to do Skype, and that was a thing, and... Then we got back in the studio, and I think, you know, last episode went well, but we have a more unified set now. We've That's got fair. power, backup, redundancy, cameras, all the things. I like things. Yeah. Also stuff. I like things and also stuff. So, uh, order of business here, I guess. This is an episode of the Inforium in which we are going to be covering some reader questions near the end. This is something that I hope to do in episodes that aren't ridiculously long. Yeah. Like the yeah, last yeah, yeah. one. I did not realize that episode was an hour and 40 minutes until yeah, Anna I had, had no finished idea editing it. That we had sat there for that long. <laughs> I had no idea. But that episode was also basically a collection of related reader or listener questions. Yeah. So, like, it doesn't necessarily need to have stacked extras on top mm-hmm. of it. And it's kind of a reflection. That episode and then this episode is kind of a reflection of the direction that I'm sort of taking more seriously on my YouTube channel now, where. I know that I'm going to have some videos that are just like half an hour long info dumps, like the um, make money online video that was 25 minutes long. And then there are going to be some videos that are just like the more stylish video essay things that sort of just dwell on one more philosophical topic. And yeah, you know, and that's kind of I think it's a good interplay to have both. So here on the Inforium, sometimes we're going to get inspired to do an episode that's like how to buy a house or how to I don't know, buy a car that's fit for racing around the track. We're not going to do that episode. Yeah, I don't know the answer. But to there's going to be super detailed episodes, and then there's going to be some episodes that are just a bit chiller. And what I want to do with those episodes is have reader questions. So to the dear listeners hanging out with us now, send us your reader questions. Guess what? We just created an Instagram for the Inforium. It's at the Inforium. You can follow it. I I'm think surprised there's a, there's that a Twitter is the as account well. name. Weird. Right? Yeah, it's also on Twitter. There's a Twitter as well. Um, I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do with it. Possibly do clips Probably again. just like a bunch of selfies. We're just a bunch of selfies. All the time. We're going to do cute selfies. Daily so yeah, selfies. Follow for the daily selfies. Yeah. Uh, but also, if, if you want to send us questions, we, we may end up posting stories there. And then, of course, I'm just going to use my personal account as well, which is at Tom Frankly. There are more followers there. That's true. So we get that's, more questions. That's very true. Yeah. And I think we got a few from the from a story I posted a while ago that we'll be tackling today. But what are we talking about before? 
we get well, into those questions. Today, I was thinking that I wanted to talk about a thought that I thought. What do you think? <laughs> Did it hurt? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I was thinking about happiness, uh, short and long-term happiness, as I often do, mm-hmm. because I'm, you know, kind of a problem solver kind of person. So I think I haven't been having a great day too many days in a row. Why? And then I immediately want to do something about it. Yeah. I'm sure you understand that feeling. But I came across the thought that, um, so obviously you can help your happiness either by removing negative things or by adding positive things. But I've been starting to think that removing negative Mm -hmm. things actually might be more important in Hmm. the long run. And that thought interested me. So wanted to talk about it. I got, I got some ideas as to why that might be true. Yeah. And then some ideas as to what one might do with that information if it is true, even if it's just on a personal basis. Maybe for some people it's true and some people it's not, but... This makes me think of, uh, you know the trolley problem? Yeah. I swear, like, it's, it's going to tie together. Um, in philosophy, there's this classic we're, we're gonna problem. We're going to kill people today with a trolley. Yes. In philosophy, there's this classic problem called the trolley problem where you're presented with this terrible scenario. You are standing next to the lever that can switch the tracks on which a trolley is going to go, right? The trolley is currently heading towards five people who, for some reason, are completely oblivious and will be hit and killed by this trolley if you do nothing. But you can pull the lever and switch the tracks so the trolley makes a turn and hits one person who's standing on the other tracks. So you can make an active decision to cause the death of one person, but save five people in doing that. There's a variation to this problem. Whereas uh, the variation is you're standing on the bridge on which the trolley goes under, and there's a person who you could push onto the tracks, which would stop the trolley or slow it enough for all five people to get off. And the interesting thing is like people, more people will choose to pull the lever than push the person, even though the outcome is the same. Hmm. You're making an active decision that will cause the death of one person to save five, but mo- most people don't want to get their hands dirty. Well, no. So you got the COVID. It's you like wash them. it's like you know an equivalent thing, and this is really similar to uh, answers I've gotten when I've asked people like, "Hey, would if I told you I could hook you up to a simulation that would cause pleasure forever, like everything would be awesome, all your wildest dreams, but you know it's a simulation, would you do it?" And most people are like, no, I wouldn't do that. I want to live in the real world. But if I ask, if I say, all right, assume that your life now is a simulation, would you choose to wake up? And a lot of people are like, mm, I kind of like it. I, I kind of I would stay. There's yeah. like this interesting there's, status there's a quote, weird right? Friction that you're trying to avoid. You don't want to. Yeah. So getting back to your hypothesis to remove negative things from your life is more important for happiness than to add things that make you happier. Uh, it just kind of reminds me of questions like, hey, would you, and you get these stupid questions in high school? Would you uh, eat a cactus for $100? You know, or like, like how, mu- how much would I have to pay you to eat a cactus with the needles? Yeah, the answer is I wouldn't do that um, right. yeah, for you, any amount of money. No amount of money. <laughs> but that's because a million dollars. there are needles, and I think I might <laughs> die. <laughs> Let's assume that... If we're talking about like, friction, I think needles in my throat is a pretty good amount of friction... Let's assume you're like L.A. Beast, who's know, like this YouTuber who, this? who did I eat a cactus. I don't YouTube. I don't, I don't know these people. <laughs> I haven't seen a whole lot of L.A. Beast recently, but he, he did eat a cactus. Is it a human or a beast? I don't know. Okay. 
depends on which fan fiction site you're reading. I just don't. I think I'm a bad sample because there are a lot of things where it's like, do this obnoxious thing for money, and I just be like, I don't really care about money that much, man. Mm-hmm. I just find it fascinating because all these scenarios, like a lot of people will will say, yes, I would do this thing that's very unpleasant for X amount of money, which is essentially saying I would like to add something negative to my life in order to add for, something for positive to my life. It's a little different because, you know, eating a cactus, it would be... It's, it's like a one-time thing. It would be a one-time thing, done. but it's like, all right, well, what if, uh, you know, you could, you could easily rephrase the question. Like, would you give up your left arm for X amount of money? I would, I would not, you know. There's no amount of money that would let me do that. But yeah, I think if you I asked a certain... I think I'd go I think if that. you asked people and you came up with a scenario where it's like, this would be a long-term consequence and it would suck, but you would get this benefit, some people would say yes. Which is interesting. I think that we heavily weight the value that something we're going to gain is going to add to our life in terms of happiness, and yeah. it is not true. Like, yeah, it feels like that might be true, but I'm just, I'm coming more and more to the realization that even with small short-term things where maybe it didn't feel already obvious, because the, the losing your arm for money thing seems kind of, kind of obvious, but... Even for smaller things, I just think removing the negatives might be more important. Yeah. And maybe not losing your arm. <clears throat> Every morning you yeah. open your front door and someone slaps you in the face, but you get like $10,000 a month for this. <laughs> that would be obnoxious. <laughs> but you're thinking about it now. That's because that's you're obnoxious. Like, this, this and also, bad, I pictured bad. it, but like I pictured. There's a swarm of angry bees every morning. Oh, I really don't like that one. <laughs> that shows up. <laughs> um, if you're allergic to bees, that's cured in order for you to endure this. Okay. So it's just hell. It, yeah, it's a, it's a cure, but it's <laughs> curing you to make things worse for you. Yeah. yeah it's one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there are a bunch of weird questions there. And I just think the, the way happiness works for us ends up being a little different than we might have assumed. Yeah. Because all of those questions just ask about money which is something that people will do weird things for and then realize but the funny thing is that past a certain point the money is statistically shown not to help you mm-hmm. so like you know that at a certain point wasn't it it stops mattering as much wasn't the classic study like seventy five thousand dollars a year is the point at which i i think money that's, stops. that's what i had that's what i had heard for the the classic study i don't know other details i would assume that you're not heavily in debt at that point because if you're in like debt sure yeah. you might be like but i want to make until i cure the debt I would assume but, it's no assuming just no lifestyle. debt other than like a mortgage. And of course, I assume the question is where is that? Because I know nowadays that's like yeah nothing. I imagine that was in average like, in like San Francisco. That number would would be like I, be I'm sure street. I'm sure that you would need more money than that in San well, you Francisco. Wouldn't, you wouldn't be on the street, the but thing. you would be you would be renting an apartment you'd, you'd with have like, like six many roommates. other people. You'd, yeah, like a lot of people do. But so but the, yeah, the, the moral of that story is there is a point at which your happiness kind of stops going up, obviously, with added positives. Yeah. At least in the form of money. But I would surmise in the form of other things. Okay. So the reason that um, one of these things, I guess, would be the hedonic treadmill, since we're talking about the money. Because with the hedonic treadmill, we have basically a baseline level of happiness that we hover around on a day-to-day basis. And almost no long-term changes will change that permanently. 
both both positive and negative if it's a very long-term change that you can adapt to. So like if you did lose your arm, mm-hmm. you would eventually adapt to it. They had done studies where people who had suddenly gained a lot of money eventually adapted to it and back to their old happiness levels. But the same yep. thing for people who had suffered like spinal cord injuries. Like really? obviously the, the trauma would be terrible at first, but eventually they both groups could be expected and themselves expected to eventually be kind of back where they were. Yeah. But so the hedonic treadmill right there takes care of a lot of the positives that people are seeking. An increased amount of money is a long-term thing. You will adapt to it. Mm-hmm. But a negative that I could remove that would maybe get me money, uh, imagine your daily commute. It might seem if you're getting a new house, a new job, you're really excited about it, you're going to make a bunch of money, but you need to do a 40-minute commute. Now, if you're yeah. in the Midwest, that may not sound bad. So make it a two-hour like commute or something. Yeah, each way. Make it make it worse for the Midwest because yeah, everybody kind of there drives more. What are talking about? Because 40 minutes on backcountry roads is very different than 40 Whichever minutes one in bumper-to-bumper bumper traffic. You, because you have, to be, you have to see this as an inconvenience when you take it because you'll think, well, I can handle it, yeah. right? Because I'm going to make more money and it'll all shake out in the end. Yeah. But what's going to happen is that through the hedonic treadmill, the money you will get used to. But that... That daily thing, that's not really something you adapt to because it's not a long-term condition. It's a repetitive, short-term condition. Yep. Each day, you get to be annoyed by this. And each day, that money becomes slightly less exciting than it was to begin with. But the yeah. drive is still annoying. And I would say, in my experience, it gets more annoying It does over time. Yeah, it's not really something that, at least in my case, you adapt to. I think it's just because you get a break from it. You stop driving for the night, and you're like, oh, at least I'm not driving. And then you do it again. It's repetitive, and that's what makes it fresh. If, it, if you were constantly maybe. driving, maybe if you were a trucker, you would be used to it. You'd be like, that's because this is my constant condition. I should ask my brother. That would be interesting to find out. Uh, yeah, I would, I would like to know that. Personally, um, and maybe you could make the argument that I wasn't, that I was getting a refresh every day, but when I was a cashier as a teenager, like that job made me unhappy when I was there. I don't I don't know if I was like unhappy all the time, but on the in the summers, I would do eight hours a day and it was just terrible. It was freshly unhappy for you, essentially. But yeah, you can go home from that job. Whereas if you get a spinal cord injury, you can't go That's home true. from it and then expect to have it again tomorrow morning. Yeah, because if that were to happen, you wouldn't adapt to it. You would. I mean, isn't that why all the all the classic like uh, birds continuously pecking at whoever's being tortured? A lot of those like old hellish stories are things that happen to you repetitively, but yeah. you have to be allowed to recover from it so that it doesn't yeah. get boring. Yep. So, yeah, maybe if I worked 24 hours a day as a cashier, I would accept my fate. Eventually, you would just be <laughs> like, this is it. This is not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you'd probably go numb, but yeah, I would it wouldn't be freshly, excitingly bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so on top of this, though, I think our brains already have an inconvenient way of focusing on negatives. Yes. Uh, and I think that Good this survival is, mechanism. It's very useful. Not great when it's like, oh, I just realized, like, I thought about how when I was in eighth grade, I did this really embarrassing thing once. And now I feel really bad. Yeah, that's not that useful. But if you're like, look, yummy berries, surrounded by alligators, but berries are good, right? So I should still go for mm-hmm. it. Now, the negative does outweigh the positive. Um, I mean, if you scroll through 10 YouTube comments 
and you see a bad one, you will likely remember that the rest of the day and oh, not yeah. the 10 neutral to positive ones <laughs> surrounding it. Yep. Uh, de- <laughs> definitely. And like uh, they did relationship studies, long-term marriages decades ago were more likely to last if they had at least five positive interactions for every one negative mm. because the negative stands out and you get used to the positives. You're like, yeah, I know that you do nice things for me. I'm used to that. Yeah. But we fought the other day and I didn't think that was going to happen. So it sticks out. I would also argue, and maybe that study took this into account, but I doubt it. I would argue that what we consider a positive interaction does not exceed expectations that the other person has of us in the same way that a negative interaction violates those expectations. Yeah. If I wake up and I give Anna a kiss in the morning, or I say I love you, like I should do these things. You gross. But... You gross. There's cooties. <laughs> she kind of expects it. Yeah. Know? Well, this if is I like that, the money it, thing, right? Like you get, that's the raise. Yeah. You, you get a kiss every morning, but eventually you know. you're like, yeah, but like. Now, if I create like a, a huge scavenger hunt with all these about, puzzles and what stuff. About second kiss? Well, that's true. I could do two. But, you know, like I think the things that are emotionally charged to the same level that a negative event would be, they're pretty few and far between. So it's almost like uh, Stephen Covey had this this uh, concept called the emotional bank account, where you're making withdrawals and you're making deposits, and you need to make more deposits than withdrawals because we tend to dwell on the withdrawals. Yeah, you know. Oh, that that's fair. So decent analogy. Yeah, I think like you have to you have to have very few negative interactions compared to your positive ones because really where, where we should where we should classify those positive ones when we're making this comparison is those are status quo interactions. Or maybe you're doing something nice, you know, a little bit above the status quo, but it's nothing compared to the uh, emotions that are brought about when violate, when we violate other people's ex- expectations in a bad way. Yeah. You know, betrayal, you know, lying to people, uh, failing on our obligations, those kinds of things like they stand out. Yeah, and obviously we're hoping for the status quo to at least be neutral, if not positive. Yeah. Because in a negative <laughs> status quo environment, you might adapt to it. Yeah. But in that case, the strategy of removing negatives would, in fact, still probably be more important than adding any positives on top. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. I was I was watching a Veritasium video, and the, the title, I think, was like, is, is success luck or hard work? And there was a concept he explained in the video where if you get two people and you ask them each, like, how much would you say you contribute to this relationship or to the work that's done here? Or like you get a team who finished a project and you ask every single one of them, how much did you contribute? Uh, you add up the percentages. It's always over 100. It's like <laughs> 140 usually. So everyone perceives that they are doing more good and putting in more effort than they probably are, which has some very interesting implications for the way that I remember group projects in college and high school. Because unless I'm some sort of statistical anomaly, my belief that half the time my group members did nothing is probably at least somewhat false. I know for sure that there are some group projects where that answer was false for me. (laughs) And uh, I didn't do nothing. I was just... Yeah, I was no longer the obvious one doing all the work sometimes, mm-hmm. but but there were yeah, maybe some group projects where like there was one person who was just dead weight. But like every but, everybody hates the group projects though, right? Yeah. So that that is a strong that's a strong point there. It's mm-hmm. very interesting. 
because everybody's like, I hate group projects. Nobody else does the work. Yep. Well, somebody's someone's somebody's, doing the work. somebody's actually not doing it, and it must be one of you complainers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's just, I don't know. We get to experience all the work we put in. Yeah, we experience so the boredom. We experience more the obnoxious. slog. We experience we experience the difficulty. We experience the discoveries. We don't experience any of that with other people. It's always interesting to me, like watching people lift weights, because I'm like, cerebrally, I know that's really heavy and it must be very challenging, but I'm not feeling anything, so it just looks like it's going up. It's like, wow, it's very easy for them. Yeah, that's you know? how like everything looks. And Ashley always mm-hmm. gets mad at me because I legit didn't understand. But when we went rock climbing, I was like. And this was an honest question. It wasn't because I thought it was easy, but I was like, but what, which part is supposed to be hard? <laughs> and that sounds like what I'm saying is that looks easy. I could do it. But yeah. I just, I just didn't actually know because I was like, is it, is the grip weirdly strong? Is it about navigating? That's it. For me, yeah. it turns out it was the looking down and being spooked about the heights. That was the hardest part. That will do it. But at first I was just confused because I knew there'd be a hidden challenge that isn't obvious when you watch it. Yeah. What do they call it? Like, oh, so you, you were aware of it, but it, I knew that the, I would uh, be missing something. That's basically. the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Oh, yeah, where, like, yeah. People are overconfident in their intelligence because they don't even know what they don't know. Yeah, I like to that? preempt that by assuming that I don't know something. Yeah. And I'm, I was asking, what is that thing? But it definitely sounded like I was saying, that doesn't look hard. <laughs> it looks so easy. You, you just put climb. your hand on the thing. You grab it. You move up. Yeah. It's not like, duh. <laughs> I can go up. There was a, a line in that Alex Honnold documentary. Um, boy, what is it called? It's like where he climbs the, the big Yosemite wall. I can't think of it right now. Everyone listening to this knows what it's called. But, uh, you know, there's a line from one of the filmmakers because he was, oh, free solo. That's what it's called. He's going to free solo this L cap, this gigantic wall. And the, the filmmaker was like, you know, people who don't rock climb, don't really understand why what he's doing is so hard and terrifying. People who know what they're doing are terrified at what he's going to attempt because they think they're about to watch a snuff film. Exactly. I mean, the filmmakers were so scared. Number one, that they were going to watch him die while filming. Number two, that they were going to do something to distract him somehow, throw his groove off and cause it. That would feel bad. So yeah, there was like this whole section of the film where they're like, do we want to do this? Like, can we, can we film this ethically? Like, what if we do something that messes it up? I don't even you like know? watching normal rock climbers out on the mountains. I like people were watching them and I was like, I just want to keep walking because if I watch and they fall, I'll never forget it ever. Mm-hmm. So I would rather just not even see this impressive feat right now, just in case. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's totally fair. But yeah, I think we just, we tend to perceive our own efforts as greater than they really are in terms of how they contribute to the whole. So in relationships, we probably feel like, I contribute so much. Why is she getting on me about this one stupid little thing I did? And it's like, eh, you didn't contribute as much as you thought yeah, you did. Yeah, you're probably you overestimating know? yourself or remembering good times. Mm-hmm. But um, back to the commute thing, actually, because one interesting thing I saw, Ashley had shown me, there was a Hank Green video on the YouTubes, if you've heard of it. And I think I've heard of that website. He was talking about happiness related effects of a daily commute because they have statistically shown and i believe repetitively that removing a commute can be way more important for your happiness than a lot of other things and in this particular study freeing up an hour-long commute gave the same happiness gains which i assume was self-reported happiness 
but it gave the same gains, giving up an hour-long commute every day, as going from getting paid $60,000 a year to $100,000. Hmm. But many people, if offered a $40,000 raise, which sounds pretty, especially at $60,000, that's, that's, that's almost a 100% raise. Yeah. You would be like, what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. An hour-long commute, no big deal. But the happiness gains were the same. So in the end, that money would kind of be a wash. I wonder what the methodology behind that was. Did they just like track a ton of people who got big raises and had them rate yeah, what, their happiness over time? What I would assume is, what? is rated happiness over time would okay. be my guess. But and I, I imagine I losing that commute is a very quick thing far versus it because you're probably not getting a forty grand raise immediately. It's like over time, so it's like a the boiling frog thing almost for them. Yeah, but it, it's pretty interesting to think that even substantial amounts of money may not be worth as much mm-hmm. because you just get used to the money. You know, you buy a more expensive car. Now you have more expensive payments. Yep. That money finds its way to disappear into your your new lifestyle. And now you're stressed mm-hmm. out because if you make any less money, you can't afford your lifestyle anymore. Yeah. Actually, it becomes a sort of trap. So that positive, ironically, comes with hidden negatives. But that commute is just a negative. I mean, I guess yeah. you can listen to the College Info Geek podcast you or, or the Emporium now. But... There's a lot you're, more. You're eventually going to be podcasts. sick about the traffic. You're going to you're going to get sick of it, unless you're the kind of person that loves traffic. I don't know that person, but I'm imagining like those people. I've only seen this in California. Like you're driving on the highway, and you look over, just glance real quick, and the person driving next to you is just staring at you. <laughs> I've seen this multiple times in L.A. I don't, I don't think I've seen it here in Denver. I did not experience <laughs> that, although in all fairness, I've only driven in L.A. for like two or three days. Mm. I've had to do a decent amount of driving in L.A. Yeah. That city is huge. You think that there is a long commute here in Denver? L.A. laughs at Denver. I had to get over to near Huntington Beach, I think, for some YouTube event. And we were in Yorba Linda, which is, if you look at the map and you look at the sprawl that is L.A., Yorba Linda is not even near close to the eastern edge of the sprawl. It's like in the middle, and it still took me two full hours to, to <laughs> get just there that way. And then going back, I think I waited till the, the traffic had died down. It took me like an hour, hour and a half. But still... I can see how on a daily basis you would you'd just be really mad. I can't I can't even imagine not being mad at that. Are there people driving two hours a day each way? Very possible. I bet you we're gonna we're probably given this is a podcast, we're probably gonna get people saying like, Yep, that's how I do it. Yeah, there's gonna be somebody who's gonna be like two hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Baby. I do four. Mm-hmm. But to your point about like buying things and upgrading your lifestyle being a trap, I'd bet you that fewer people would give up $40,000 in income to remove their commute oh, yeah, yeah. than would add the commute to get $40,000 in income. Yeah, because you wouldn't think that it would make a big deal, but mm-hmm. all the positives become the status quo. Yep. And it sort of evens out. It's like, it's a, it's a terrible part of human nature, but it's also the beauty of human nature that the moment we solve a problem or gain something, we we've like uncovered five smaller problems. Yeah. They call it the uh, exploration exploitation loop. It's part of the reason that human beings have been so successful because 
Like if you built a robot, it's like, hey, go exploit that resource. It would do that. But it wouldn't have an innate drive to like cu- get curious and like start exploring other things. Just like I exploit the resource as efficiently as possible. That's it. Yeah. We're like exploit the resource. But wait now. Hmm. I got the cool car. I want to kind of want to put a cool exhaust on it now. I want to get like LEDs underneath and I want TVs as mud flaps. You know, we're kind of hobbyists Standard. at finding imperfections. Yeah. Which is uh, obviously a decent way to stay kind of unhappy, but also to invent many things. Mm hmm. Yeah, like the average person in in college or early career living in like an apartment with roommates, they will look at a 50 year old married couple bickering over the um, the, you know, the wrought iron design on their side yard posts in the fence. And they're like, that's alien to me. How, How could one care at all? And yet, like 30 years from now, I guarantee you, like 75 percent of you will have had that argument and will have cared very deeply about raw iron design and your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, life is really about like solving problems more than the solution to the problems. Yeah. And because of that, we will always find more problems to solve or yep. we will resign ourselves to feeling somewhat empty, unfortunately. Yeah. So that's just that's just part of the situation we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there are ways to take advantage of that. You know, like choose like, hey, maybe I can solve other people's problems for a while. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, yeah, will, they will well, end up you go finding to, you out. You go to charity work, you go to stuff like that, and you start mm-hmm. feeling purpose again. This helps a lot of people because of that. Or you Somewhat know, of a, a lot of uh, what's tip, been discovered about like giving dogs to prisoners. Hmm. You know, they like start to feel like, oh, I have something I have to care for now. I'd rather give prisoners to dogs. And the dogs have to be the warden. <laughs> like you're, like that you're was really dark for a you're second. You're the dog's prisoner. <laughs> okay. What happens? I don't know. Dog warden. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds like an Air Bud movie, <laughs> but like a really sad one. Prison Bud. <laughs> oh my god. Would I watch that one? Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah, I probably would. It's like Ernest goes to jail. Yeah. It just with be, dogs. It just be very. It's very weird. <laughs> uh, anyway. Outside of Airbud prisoner side movies, <laughs> um, I wonder if this is why people are like more passionate about dogs in general than cats because they make good wardens. Yes, no, I think a cat would make a better prison warden than a dog. Maybe. Mm, I don't know. Cats don't care very much. I don't think you have cat to make would them care. care. You'd, it'd just be like I don't really care if you're escaping. Eh. That that mm, I, mean, eh. I don't know. Eh. You got to build a device that like puts a laser pointer on the escapee, so then the cat cares. We'll pitch this movie later <laughs> to someone. But yeah, like, cats are great. I have a cat. I don't have a dog. I love cats. You don't really have to do as much to take care of them. So there is less of that, like, purpose-giving nature to getting a cat. Oh, not not true, because they're, like, a thousand times more adorable, Tom. They are. And I know I'm opening they, myself up to a lot of hate here. <laughs> but the adorable is the purpose. They are super adorable. I, must, I still I am unsure. alive. If I think dogs or cats are the cutest, I don't know. I'm not going to step any further into that trap than I already have. The cute versus effort ratio is definitely skewed. In <laughs> if you cats were trying favor. to profit in, in <laughs> cute versus effort, then then yeah, yes, yeah, definitely. The, the, skewed cat, in the, the favor cat will cats. probably win every time there. <laughs> anyway, anyway, this is not an episode where I try to invite dog lovers to hate me. Um, the point is that I think when faced with difficult decisions in life. It might be a better idea to consider the long-term or short-term negatives 
So, mm. um, like, let's say you wanted to move anywhere yep. in the country. You love Disney World, but you hate humidity. Obviously, you should put the humidity at a much higher consideration than Disney World. That's fair. Because you will get over the excitement. Yeah. Or, but you um, will deal with the humidity every day. Yeah. Or similarly, predicting future regrets is actually a pretty good way of making decisions, I think. This is this is my big issue with the idea of moving to the Northwest, yeah. which I think is the most beautiful part of this country. It is, it is fantastic. And I, I won't lie... I like the level of humidity there more. I don't mind the dryness here. I can deal with it. I know like it's, it's you don't like it a lot, but um, yeah. I can deal with it. I don't like the humidity of the Midwest where I grew up, but Seattle has like this really happy medium and then it has the coast and everything. It's gorgeous. I love the water. I love the nature. I don't know how the gray would affect me because that would be a, a pretty long-term like especially in the winter is almost an everyday thing. Yeah, and you'd have to know that you're okay with that downside mm-hmm. because the upside won't make up for it. And I know like there's a lot here in Denver that I love. There's I have mountains here. There's not a lot of water, but I can go to the reservoir if I want to. There's a lot of things where it's like in considering moving to a place like Seattle, I think of the things that I could do as like, you know, fun short-term things like, "Oh, I could go to the lake." Oh, I could go hiking in the woods. I can go walk by the pier. Um, that's awesome, you know. But like, wh- what do I do on an average day? I don't. I don't go to the mountains every day here. No, you're just gonna. You're gonna work. I work. You're gonna go to a coffee shop in mm-hmm. non-pandemic times. You're gonna do normal stuff. So the question is, which negatives do you dislike at the least? Yeah, during I, a, during a normal day. And I know myself. Like, I will add things to my plate, like hobby wise. That will cut into anything where I could, you know, take advantage of the natural beauty of where I live. I'll take vocal lessons. I'll, like, make music. I'll do, you know, whatever, skateboarding, whatever it is. I could do that in either place. So it's like, okay, cool. A lot of my hobby time and and, uh, what's the word for it? Recreational time is taken up with things that I could do in either place. So only a small percentage of it is going to be dedicated towards things I could exclusively experience in that place versus this place. Yeah. Is that worth the potential negatives? Mm. And for this, it's like a very tough problem because I literally don't know. Well, I you just, can't you can't know. It's tough to know. I just do know that like the days when I wake up and it's super gray outside, I'm like, oh. Oh, see, I'm I'm thrilled when you, I wake up and it's gray it. outside. <laughs> so it's really just like mountain biking and rock climbing, all that stuff aside, because you would find adaptive outdoor things in almost any place. Mm-hmm. But really, for you, a better question is, do you prefer the downside of it being a little more dry than you'd like or the downside of long-term grayness? Yeah. And it's and that becomes, I think, a more useful measure than, whoa, I could climb the mountains. Guess what? I've been to the mountains a handful of times. Yep. They're cool, but most of the time I'm just working or doing normal. I'm not going to drive two hours out to the mountains every day. I'm not. I'm just not going to do that. And if I did, I would get sick of the drive. And it... Yep. And it wouldn't matter. And I think this is important is sort of predicting either the short-term things that will bother you the most and then Mm -hmm. comparing which annoyances you'd rather live with or trying to predict for some decisions long-term regrets. Like um, there's a quote from BoJack Horseman, which I haven't seen, but I saw the quote and it stuck with me. And it was, uh, life is a series of closing doors, isn't it? And that terrifies me. 
it's very similar to a Sylvia Plath portion of a semi-autobiographical, I believe, book mm. that she wrote where she's looking up at this fig tree and every fig is a different potential life. And as she's standing there trying to choose one because you could only choose one, they begin to rot and fall because mm. the longer you spend trying to figure out the perfect positives, the more of them you just lose. Yeah. And I think a better way to look at it is which things would I regret the most? Yep. You know, which which ones will I be like, why didn't I ever do that? That one really meant something. All of these cool things over here, they're cool, but I think I could have justified to myself missing out on those. Yeah. And that's... Uh, yeah. And it's like, it sounds sad to think of it that way, but I think that's an important way to make sure you don't have giant regrets. I, want, I would like to have the fewest regrets possible mm-hmm. in life, just as a general rule. And yeah. you need to have these regrets I think when making long-term decisions like that, if we're talking about moving or if we're talking about career changes or having a family, predicting that regret might be useful because there is some evidence that we over-predict regrets. Mm. And I think that, that that small tendency to think things will be slightly worse than they actually end up feeling might spur you into action out of your comfort zone. That's true, yeah. Like right now... So if you're in a chapter in your life that you're not thrilled with, but you're okay with it, and you don't have a strong push, you might stay in it. Now, someday that chapter ends, regardless. Mm -hmm. If, hypothetically, I choose to end a chapter now, I know for certain there is a new one that awaits me. If I wait, this chapter still ends, but I cannot guarantee any new chapters. I do not know. So you need something scary like regrets to Mm -hmm. motivate you. Otherwise, the daily life sort of just happens and you never find time. So thinking yeah. about the negatives is scarier and therefore, I think, more useful because we can live without many of the positives we want. Yep. Tim Ferriss had an interesting point on this. Someone asked him, how do you deal with the anxiety caused by all the potential realities and lives that you're just letting go by making the choices you make? And uh, his recommendation was read military strategy. Because in war, you almost never have perfect information, but waiting is almost always the wrong answer. Mm. You have to use the information you have, make the best decision you can, and hope that the outcome is good, because the alternative is to wait and almost certainly lose your advantage. <laughs> wait, 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 guys, I don't have the perfect strat yet. Exactly, yeah. You, you, know, you just have to use what you got. And if you think of life like that, like, I'm never going to have perfect information, now, which means I never had a hundred percent guaranteed chance to pick the right door. And that means you really shouldn't regret the door that, you know, you didn't pick in the past. You didn't have perfect information. Yeah. But what you should regret is not taking action because that will hopefully spur you to take action in the future. Yeah, exactly. And I think regrets are going to feel worse when you do that. Mm-hmm. Regretting not doing something because I was scared to try anything. I think would would hurt more than regretting not doing something because I chose an alternative yeah. on and I I chose the alternative rather than sort of fell into it. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you uh, would regret not doing? I'm unsure about this one still, okay. but I think there's a decent possibility that I would regret never having kids. Okay. I don't know 
uh, I would regret never going to Japan for sure. Mm. I would be very sad if every single year for the rest of my life I said, well, I don't really want to spend the money or maybe my language skills aren't ready. Maybe I'm not ready. I would definitely regret being like, why did I, why didn't I just do it? Yeah. That would be something. That's a big thing. Um, I don't know a lot of other terrible regrets at the moment. I think I would regret if I never spent at least a significant amount of time more in the Northwest. I don't know if that means I have to live there. A large part of me thinks that I want, I still want to at some point, but I know that I would at least regret if I didn't like have a semi frequent ability to travel there. Yeah. I also, I see no reason why, you know, long-term you couldn't live there if that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. I strongly, I strongly lean toward it, Mm. but then I've got a way. Would I regret being farther away from my family? Yep. Now I've, I've already lost some family and, it turns out that statistically, I'm very likely to only continue to do that it as I get older. That way, and yeah. my only escape route is if I get hit by a bus first. So obviously I'm not banking on that. So the question is, would I regret being farther away from my family or not moving to the Midwest or the Northwest more? Mm-hmm. And that's a tough one. You know, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to gauge. And I'd have to think about it. It's but interesting because... For most of human history, people didn't have this choice. No. Like, and you it's weird just, to even have the choice to pick where you want to live. Yeah. You grow up and you grow old in the place roughly where you were born, most likely. Yeah. Or you go out west and try to strike gold, but you probably never see anybody else you ever knew again. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of have to... That was a big decision, I'm sure. Yeah. And now it's, it's, it's interesting because there is like this half belief that you can have it all. We all know it's you know? not true, but we all try to lie to ourselves and say, but it's true for me. Yeah, I can I yeah. can keep all my old friends and see my family often and also go meet new friends and we also go do up. all the things I wanted to do. And We all have to give up much. I think part of it is the uh, sheer exposure you have to options. You know, the, the brain literally like rewires itself in response to learning about these options. I'm, I'm very fascinated to how the the human mind adapts to its environment and to the, the things it's exposed to. Like if you never knew the Northwest was a thing, you wouldn't want it. You know? No. When, when if was, no one had ever told me it was a real thing, I'd be like, everything else I've experienced is fine. And I would pick different things in, yeah, in college. Like you had never really left Iowa no. for the most part. No, nope. maybe like going to Omaha every once in a while. But so I, I think, if I remember correctly, like you had said, Hey, I want to go to Europe. I want to go to France. Like there's these places I want to go to, but there's nowhere really in the United States. That's like drawing me particularly. I didn't know anywhere in the United States that interested me. Mm -hmm. And even now, honestly, there are only like four places that interest me in the United States. Yeah. They're like Northwest Minnesota places in Colorado. And also Vermont recently seems, seems pretty in my mind. I was about to say like, the northeast i think there's a lot you don't know about but, it but, but like i don't know enough about any other state to care what about like the party district doesn't, of doesn't miami mean they're, i don't want that and it, <laughs> and it doesn't mean they're bad but if you were to ask me one single fact about arkansas i would say it's not pronounced like kansas that's true america explain that's <laughs> if you were to ask it. me one single fact about Arkansas. Number one, the band Outline Colors from there, and they're dope. And number two, apparently there's really good mountain biking trails there. So I'll see. To go. See, there's a thing, and I would I couldn't know that. Mm-hmm. And now I personally still don't care. But 
<laughs> you don't. I can see why mountain biking know. trails and a post I didn't have a great band. first experience, but <laughs> you definitely adapt to your expectations. If you were like some surf farmer in the 1700s, you wouldn't be like, "Oh, I just I wish I was an astronaut." Surfer farmer? No, like a, if you were like a surf, like surfing, like yeah, you surf while farming. You 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 put the net in your hands and you surf, and you catch fish. So a fisherman. No, you're farming the surf fish. Farmer. This is actually farmed fish. You're in the the fish container and you're surfing okay. with the automatic wave machine. Right. It's okay. Which you installed for reasons. <laughs> I'm now gonna call fishermen <laughs> surf farmers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something like that. Uh, but you you wouldn't be mad that you weren't an astronaut. You would have accepted yeah. this is it. This is my possibilities and I yeah. will do my best within them. Yeah. There was uh, oh, man. What book was I reading? Where all this. I learned about it. I can't remember, but um, when the Soviet Union was forming, they would send these researchers out to remote villages to try to um, educate them and get them like hooked into the system they were trying to build up. And it was really interesting, like the the super remote villages that had had basically no contact with the big cities. The people there thought totally different than people who had been connected to the big cities. Uh, and the most interesting way, I think this was in the book range. Uh, the most interesting thing to me was they couldn't really think conceptually. Like if you were like, here's a group of four things, a deer, a bear, uh, or no, it was like a deer, um, an arrow, a bow and a frying pan, like what doesn't belong. And you know, somebody who lived in a modern society would be like, well, the deer is an animal, it's living, so that doesn't belong. But also, like, the frying pan doesn't belong because, like, the deer and the bow and the arrow, like, that's hunting the deer. The people who live in these these remote villages were like, they're all part of the same thing. Like, you can't, you got to cook it, you have to hunt it, the deer has to be there, you can't separate anything. I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I literally couldn't think of it. That makes sense to me, though. It, it makes sense that you would be like, my conception of this is that your question is dumb. Yep. Because in no situation would I not need all four. Yeah. That and that's how they apparently, according to the book, that's how they responded. Like this question doesn't make any sense. They couldn't think of conceptual groupings because they hadn't been exposed to that idea before. Yeah. Which part of the pop tart doesn't belong, Tom? Mm-hmm. The frosting, the crust, the inside, or the toaster? Which one doesn't belong? You gotta have them all. Wrong. If you can't toast the pop tart, why would you? Eat? Yeah. Exactly. All four are part of the important <laughs> same group. That actually might be a better example of like how, obviously how you could be like, well, the toaster is not part of a, a pop tart, so it doesn't belong. But that's wrong. what it was like. But yeah. wrong, it does belong mm-hmm. because you need to toast it. Yep, it, it was kind of like unless that. it's one of the ones that tastes better frozen. You know, and it's like, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. But <clears throat> it, it's like we're it's not like we're somehow fundamentally different from humans that were born back in like the Stone Ages or the Roman times or whatever. We're the same biologically. It's just the ideas that we're exposed to, the systems, yeah. the societies, they change our brains. Yeah. They change our conception of how life should work. And we're they just make us adapt think in different ways. What we're supposed to be doing. And it's like that's I think that's important to remember just because a lot of people will assume that people from the olden days were just like universally super dumb and mm-hmm. of course of course they thought that cheese summoned rats, duh. Because they were just a bunch of idiots. Well, they're not. They're not that different. They were just at different stages, and all, and there were a lot of really intelligent things happening. Yeah, that you just don't get credit because we assume we must be the smartest automatically. Yep. But we're not that far away. 
Well, it's just like that thing we were talking about where people assume that they have done more work and the, you know, the everyone's collective assumptions end up being more than 100% when added together. We are living in the now when we see the products of technological progress and everything and we think we must be smarter. Yeah. You know, and maybe we are smarter in certain ways. Maybe we have a deeper knowledge of certain things, but we're not actually smarter. Yeah, like if you gave the same informational information and time and stuff. Yeah, the ability of a, like, of a baby born in the Roman times to learn, you, you suck them through a time vortex and you put them in today's times. Time to would, adopt past babies. They would learn just as well as we would. Yeah. You know? A really interesting thing to think about, kind of like a terrifying thing to think about, is uh, in Dan Carlin's podcast, Hardcore History, um, he talks about, like, people back then, they weren't a different species. They're humans, which means you're largely a product of the society in which you were brought up. And that means if you were born in Roman times, there's a high likelihood that you would think nothing of going to the gladiatorial games and watching people kill each other. Yeah, you you may have been desensitized to it. And mm-hmm. if you and if you didn't like it, it would have been harder for you to speak out in that environment. Yep. And, and or you wouldn't have been taken seriously. Now, I I would love to not maybe not go back, but I would love to be able to observe for myself how things actually were. Like were there a lot of people who were against that? Because I think like popular culture has this assumption that back in Roman times, like the general populace loved the gladiatorial games and thought nothing of like wanton murder in, in an arena. I have to wonder if there were actually a lot of people who were like, I don't like that. I don't go in for that. Yeah, winners write the rule books and they weren't mm-hmm. in power, clearly. So, But what we do know is that there was a gigantic coliseum with a heck of a lot of seating. Yeah. So it wasn't like everyone was like, nope, I don't like that. Like they were filling those seats. So. And there's a lot of records about it. Yeah. So it's weird to think of, you know, and I'm, I love making little observations about this. Like, oh, hey, you know, people getting so excited for their football teams. It's just like a manifestation of tribalism. Yeah. One's football team, especially for like the ones where you live in the city where the football team is like, that's just part of your identity, your group identity. So the people who don't understand, like, why do you care about football? Why do you get so excited? Like, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, it's, it's a like pretty, it's actually a pretty, identity. pretty natural thing for mm-hmm. people. Yeah, it's very natural. And it's very natural to tie some of your own self-worth into the performance of that group. That's why people feel great when their team wins. So you, you didn't really do anything, but you Ooh. feel great because you feel like you were part of it. To take this back to the, the main episode topic, one tip, don't move somewhere where the team sucks because you will become <laughs> attached to it. And then you will hurt every time well, you okay. lose. Unless me, you want to be one of the ironic fans who's like, yeah, I know they suck, but I love them anyway. A lot of people are like that. I mean, like, I mean, I guess you have to embrace it at that point, right? Otherwise, it's... I mean, let me, let's be honest. The, the Kansas City Chiefs were... I mean, for most of my life, they were never that great, it, but I never like, abandoned them. If you're assuming that you need to be the best or the worst, most teams have to not be the best, so mm-hmm. everybody's going to have to be a, like a, an apologist... Well, for their team to some there's degree. There's another thing where it's like, if you're not part of where the best team is, which I think historically is usually like the Patriots, well, then everyone loves to just like pile up on hating the Patriots. We, yeah. We can all agree on not liking the Patriots. Yeah. You know, 
and like to to be clear, I don't really have a dog in this fight, and I would push back on your tip for people who don't care about sports because I live in Denver. Oh no, and I, don't, I, I it definitely doesn't apply if you don't do care not about know. sports. I do not know how well the Rockies have done. I don't know how well the Broncos have done. I do know they won the Super Bowl like some number of years ago. That's not cool. that long ago. Uh, do we have a basketball team? The Denver Nuggets. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how well I didn't they actually did. know the answer to that question. <laughs> the the one I don't know the answer to is yeah, do you we don't have care, a professional matter. hockey team? I I assume we must. I think so. It's like Den- Denver. You think is it the Avalanche? Is it the Denver Avalanche. That must be it. I thought we so had. I one. couldn't remember if Avalanche. I think that is one, one might be true. Like, Iowa teams. I'm not 100 percent sure it's true. I've liked hockey in the past, so I'm vaguely hockey aware, but I'm not very hockey. Hockey's aware. probably the one I would choose to watch out of all four of those. Yeah, I like hockey and soccer because they're kind of similar, just on grass or ice. They're really dynamic. Like, like the the board setup, at least. Yeah. Pretty similar from a watcher's perspective. And then I would watch basketball, and then I would watch baseball, and then football last. Yeah. I don't know why. I just find football very boring to watch. I don't know. I try. Every Super Bowl, I get invited to a party. I'm like, I'm going to watch this time. I'm going to be part of it, and I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, look, Tom Brady threw a thing, and then a guy crossed the line, and there was a bunch of other guys, and they piled on him. What are you going to do? Boop. I guess whatever, whichever one happens to speak to you, I guess. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, um, I guess before before we get into the reader questions or the listener questions that I always call reader the cult questions, member questions, still, cult member questions. Get it right. Um, the last thing I would want to say is that not um, I was talking about long term regrets, but you could also use the avoidance of negative things to improve your daily life, which I think is very good for underlying stress levels. Yes. Because a lot of people, myself included, most of the time have like this level of underlying anxiety and stress that never goes away. Mm-hmm. So. Simple things like um, Ashley and I split chores based on which one we dislike most. I hate folding clothes. She doesn't want to carry laundry up and down the stairs. Hmm. Or I don't like baking or boiling because it's boring, but she doesn't want to work with fancy knife work. So we split and do the part that the other like dislikes more, but we dislike less. And then it doesn't really matter if I'm not excited to bring laundry up and down the stairs, Mm -hmm. but I'm taking a negative away from her life. And if she mm. folds it, she's taking a negative away from me. That's a small help. Ooh, um, we had our money example earlier. You know, like taking away a commute is the same in terms of happiness as adding forty grand apparently in salary. Uh, take that logic one step further and ask yourself: Would I miss fifty bucks a month to not mow my lawn? Yeah, removing, you're removing a nope. negative. Um, if you really hate the lawn, that may be a good. Yeah. thing to optimize for and you're probably giving somebody else giving somebody else a job by default that's pretty mm-hmm. useful that's how i think because i've had people <clears> be like oh you're so lazy for not mowing your own lawn you're so lazy for not doing xyz domestic work thing it's like um no because there are people who want to do that job or at least are willing to do that job and i'm willing to pay for it so they get to make money yeah, and you get to remove a little bit of a negative at the yeah. cost of money. Where if it's a, if it's small enough amount, you'd be like, the negative of losing that money doesn't matter, but the negative of mowing is really obnoxious, and I don't want to do it ever. Mm-hmm. I had a heck of a lot of friends who went out every weekend during college, and they'd spend fifty bucks a weekend just like going to bars. Yeah, and there's not like a societal, you know, looking down upon that kind of behavior. Maybe there's a little bit, but I, I haven't seen depends it. Depends on your sector. I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen people act as disgusted towards that as they do towards 
paying for people to come do your housework. Well, for there's you. definitely some sort of a oh look at aren't we fancy mm-hmm. kind of a kind of an assumption I think in there. It's like it's, it's a very American thing too. I think like I I've had uh, it is weird people who live in like Asian countries and they're like we have a maid and it's super normal and we aren't an upper class family. You know yeah. And, I think like here in the U S maybe paying for a full-time maid or a nanny or whatever it is would be pretty expensive. But the whole idea is just, it seems like it's looked down upon and I just don't get it. Yeah. I, I assume it's more of a stop rubbing your money in my face sort of a situation. If, mm-hmm. if it's assumed that that task is expensive. Yeah. Like la di da, I can afford somebody to do my laundry or something. But in the end it's, actually fairly similar to paying for anything else like pre-made food that's just you paying some that's you paying a chef is it a mcdonald's chef maybe but you're still paying someone to do something you could have done yourself or if you bought a slightly nicer car the difference in monthly payment if you financed it might be the exact same as if you had bought a more modest car and you're like hey i just i don't want to mow my lawn yeah yeah you know um i guess along that lines you get double points if you swap out a negative for a positive um so a commute for a bike ride it might be a longer commute in denver depending on where you're going it can actually be the same commute yeah um that's a good point a bike ride would be positive for me and driving through rush hour traffic would be a negative so if i swap those out guaranteed my quality of life has just risen a lot yeah i think it would be good to ask yourself like what is the negative element of this thing that i don't like is it the fact that I have a commute is the fact that I have to leave my house and go somewhere or is it, I hate sitting in my car in bumper to bumper traffic. Yeah. Cause if, if, if that's the case, then like you're right. A 40 minute bike ride every day could be awesome. I love riding my bike. I would prefer a 40 minute bike ride to like a 30 minute drive. Mm-hmm. If I had to pick, I would definitely do a bike. Yeah. Unless it was winter, in which case the negative of biking in the cold far surpasses yeah. the traffic. That's not great. You know, yeah. Shout out to all the Minnesotans that do it anyway. They do. They get the fat bikes, the big tires, and they ride in the snow. And they I'm care. impressed, and may I learn their secrets someday by studying them. I grew up having to do it. I did it. My, I did it in Iowa a little bit. My school was one point nine nine miles away from my house, and you had to live two miles away. I wasn't as much of a baby back as like <laughs> at that age though. And like now, I'm like, oh, it's cold. Huh? I don't want to. Yeah, you know. But you as don't a kid, have to. As now. a kid, I played in the snow, and now I'm like, oh. It definitely it's because of the choice. I still play in the snow. I just pay a lot of money to Vail Resorts, and I go up on a mountain and bring skis. Oh yeah, well, I'm gonna make <laughs> snow angels, and I'm gonna save a bunch of money. That's so true. You will up? save a bunch of money doing that. That's fair. <sighs> but yeah, like l- look at how you can maybe tweak what you're doing. You don't have to remove the commute. Maybe you could make it a bike ride. Yeah, maybe you can't. Moving you know? closer to your job is obviously yeah. harder. Or like. I don't know. Just, uh, I, changing it. I'm I'm at another point in my life where I don't want to cook, but I spent my whole life thinking I really don't like to cook, and then for a while I got really into cooking and I loved it. So I think some things may be perceived as a negative, but maybe there's something you could do to change the way you view it. Yeah. Maybe do like a challenge, like okay, well, why do I not? Why do I not like cooking? Because I cook the same old crap every night, and it's not that great, and there's still a bunch of cleanup. Well try some new recipes well i mean that's what ashley and i are hoping to do because i want to do the fancy knife work and the, mm-hmm. the prepping of really specific things but i just hate waiting i don't want to boil pot i just don't care about boiling pasta yeah. or about any of the things that are just put it in mm-hmm. pay attention i guess yeah 
that's it. I don't want to do that. That kills cooking for me. One more thing I want to mention on this is you had talked about this, I think, when you mentioned like asking yourself what you're going to regret later in life. Yeah. It may be worth accepting some annoying things in your life in the short term if you have a dream that requires accepting those. I had a dream once. You know, like you want to go work in the publishing industry. You need to move to New York City and you got to live with four roommates for a while. And that sucks because one of them is really annoying and stays up playing WoW all night. Uh, but Suck the long term negative of regretting. Yep. Because you're going to regret not trying. Right. Yeah. So do it. And because when you look in the past, negatives aren't as strong mm-hmm. as as they were. You look back with like rose tinted glasses. Yeah. So the short-term negatives, as long as they were for a long-term positive, will... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just... So, yeah, maybe you don't that accept... One's, that one's going to be okay. Maybe you don't accept negatives in your life that are just there because they're there for no real reason or or because you think you need something, like you think you need a certain amount of money or something like that. But if there's something you want to do, go do it. Like a really intrinsic positive that you're working for. Yeah. Rather than something like... Like money's always the obvious example, but... That one won't pay off the same way as your dreams, obviously. I don't think I'm going to look well, back here's a and good be example. like, I wish I had earned another $100,000 on top of the, whatever it is I earned in my life. I just, yeah. my one regret. I mean, like, so the my last year in Iowa, I was really into figure skating. And the only time I could take lessons was at 7 a.m. at the latest. I also had the option of doing 6 a.m. That was it. I don't like going to bed super early i don't like waking up super early but i did it because i was willing to make the sacrifice so there there's not there's a non-money example yeah you know would i have rather taken the lessons at like 9 a.m got up made breakfast yeah but that's not that's not my option yeah which negative do you do you hate the most Mm -hmm. missing out on this opportunity entirely exactly yep all right, let's get into right, some so uh, cult member questions. Cult member questions. Let's see. All right, you got these questions too, right? Oh, I do? They're on Notion, I think. Uh, I'll ask I the first do. One. Here we go. First one. I'm working on my resume after seeing a job post for a uh, podcast producer. Now, even though I produce and host a podcast from time to time, mm-hmm. and it relates to the job, I'm unsure if I should include it on my resume since it's a hobby. Should I add it anyway? Would you be willing to talk about it in an interview with pride? That's that's a solid answer. That's my barometer. If it's like a super embarrassing podcast about niche anime and you're only going to get flustered and ruin your interview, <laughs> if you talk about it, yeah, probably don't include it. Yeah, Unless run, you're proud uh, of it. I run that, I maybe run, uh, BronyCast. I mean, I guess it depends on what you're <laughs> applying for, what, what podcast it is. But that's, that's, a, true. that's a good barometer right there. Yeah, so... Is the hobby side project you're working on, what is it going to look like to the interviewer? You know, because I don't know. Let's just say you're running like a podcast about fetishes or something. Maybe that's not going to do so well if you're like a, applying to be a podcast producer yeah, for a one, bank or something like that. I don't know. You don't, and you probably don't want to put, oh, I host a podcast, but don't not name it because they'll be like, oh, what kind of podcast? And you'll be like. Um, don't worry. It, it, I did. I don't actually host a podcast. I I, I, that was. Can we just say I lied on my resume? <laughs> Let's just go. I with don't want to tell you. Let's what just it is. go with that. Then uh, maybe, yeah, maybe don't 
at that point. Yeah, so like you have to ask yourself like wh- how is it going to be perceived? But the ver- the fact that it is a hobby is not going to make it look illegitimate. Like just the fact that it's a hobby that you're not being paid for. CIG started as a hobby. I listed projects on my resume. I had a mm-hmm. language skills section. I actually I wanted that stuff on there because it would make me stand out and therefore be slightly more memorable. Yeah. It's it's interesting, but mm-hmm. also I would have been proud to talk about any of those things. Yeah, I feel like podcasting, being a YouTuber, being a blogger, being a photographer, videographer, a ton of these things that are legitimate careers, people who get into them almost invariably start out as hobbyists. No one's going to... I've never picked up a camera before. Will you pay me to take photos of your wedding? No. Yeah, I don't... It's like my fifth one. I don't care at this point. <laughs> you know... So if, if I'm, if I'm getting married, which I am, and I'm trying to hire a photographer and I'm considering somebody who has never done professional photography work before, I don't know if I would, but, uh, just to say I was, I'm probably going to be like, well, show me some of your hobbyist work. I'm I'm sure as hell going to want to see that over just like, eh, just nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Just show me nothing. And especially list it if it's somewhat relevant. Mm-hmm. Like if I were doing if I were applying for that position, I'd be like, look at all these macro bugs. And you'd be like, there aren't gonna be a lot of those at the <laughs> wedding, <laughs> actually. Uh, technically there we're will not, be. It's an outdoor wedding. We're not we're not planning on specifically focusing <laughs> <laughs> on the arthropod guests. And I'll be like, oh. <laughs> then then listing it isn't really that helpful. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. If <laughs> if I was you and I was trying to get a wedding photography gig, I would probably. You've done a few portraits. You did a picture of me occasionally. Yeah. I would still include a couple of the macro things because those are interesting. Those are going to start a conversation. Yeah, but as long as as long as I also have the other skills. Yes. So when you're trying to get a job, you need to put together a resume and a portfolio that is going to tell the person that's making the decision. You have the requisite skills and experience to do the work, but it also has to get their attention. I think we've done episodes on study abroad. I'm not sure if you've been on them. I've done episodes with people Probably like in not the past considering guests. I didn't. And I think I remember doing an episode um, about the value of study abroad and, and the guest I was talking to, one of their points was, uh, you know, I've been in interviews where I've listed my study abroad experience on my resume and there it becomes a point of conversation like, oh, what was what was Sweden like? You know, and that makes you memorable. It's not like going to replace experience that they're looking for, but it makes you more memorable. And if you're on a short list with people who have that experience but aren't memorable, you might be the one get picked who gets picked. Yeah. Hobbies and side projects and mm-hmm. things like that are definitely good to add as like yeah. they're like the frosting on top of your delightful cake resume. I assume the mm-hmm. resume is actually a cake because this is nonsense meme world. If you're applying to be on Cake Boss, your and resume I, I better be a cake. I don't understand the internet anymore. I've, I've, we've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> Every day we stray a little further yeah. from God's light. Yeah, yeah, essentially, <laughs> in a nutshell. But this is the thing I love about podcasting, video creation, blogging, any kind of creative work. There are legitimate opportunities to build a career in all these areas that are only getting stronger as more and more businesses realize that content is the best marketing you can get. Give us videos, give us podcasts, give us blogs, give us all that you can give us, but no one has to give you permission to start doing them. Yeah. 
There is no permission required to start a YouTube channel, to start a podcast, to start a blog, none of it. And that is where you're going to get your first bits of experience. That's where you build the foundation. And I would, I would say like, if it is your intention to build a career in this, in this area, treat your hobby seriously. You know, every single week you make a podcast. How can I make this better? Let me, let me watch this YouTube video on compression and EQ so I can make the sound better. Let me learn, you know, what RSS actually is. So if there's like a bug in my feed, I can troubleshoot it myself and I know how to troubleshoot code on there. Let me learn how to build a basic website so I can host my podcast. Let me build all these little sub skills that sort of support the main skill. All of a sudden, a couple of years from now, you realize I've got like this really great, versatile, deep skill set in this area that I thought was a hobby and I can talk about it at length in an interview. Yeah. So absolutely. If, if you would be willing and not embarrassed to talk about it in an interview, list it on the resume. And, uh, that also goes for like skills and software. Like I've seen a lot of people, they're like, what should I list in my skill section? Well, you know, I, I I have opened Excel once. Can I put Excel? What happens if they ask you about it? Yeah. Yeah. What's a pivot table? Oh, don't put it on there. Table to pivots. (laughs) All right. Uh, I started writing a series of articles with a common theme right now. It's about 8,000 words and I don't even think I'm halfway done yet. So 8,000 words, across the whole series, I guess. Yeah, I would assume. Okay, uh, let's see here. Do you recommend starting a blog, forming an, forming an audience, and then releasing a book? Or would you write a book to gain an audience to then start a blog? Start a blog. If you want to do both, why not? Yeah. Cost of entry is so low, and a book in itself is incredibly difficult to market. It would be easier to market with an audience. Mm-hmm. Also, you've proven stamina if you do a blog. You've proven that you're willing to go very long term mm-hmm. with it. There's a reason why publishers reject 99% of the pitches they get. And there's actually there's several reasons. A lot of the book pitches are just bad or they're not paranormal teen romance or whatever is popular it's right the now. the only genre. But and this is especially true in nonfiction, many publishers reject a book because the author does not have a platform to market that book. So, and this is why, like a lot of times, the book you pitch, especially in nonfiction, is not always that important. Like your ability to write amazingly, not always super important. From what I've been told by agencies and by people who have done this, pitched books themselves, it's more... How well are you going to be able to sell this book for us? It is unfortunate that marketing ability kind of supersedes skill in many areas but in, in a money-making world. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even say it's unfortunate because it's it's just it's business. It's just kind of how capitalism you know? works. And, and you can not like works. that all you want. I don't think it's great. But it is still the framework we're working within at the moment. So if you want to mm-hmm. sell a book, marketing ability is going to help it. That's, that's just how it works. Yeah. Uh, it's like um, it's like pop versus jazz, you know. I, I I think even even well-known pop musicians would not hesitate to say, yeah, jazz musicians, especially at the top of jazz, are infinitely more talented and proficient musicians than we are. But uh, part of the reason that we're bigger is because because of that, because they they care so much about 
you know, going through the Coltrane changes and having like 18 different keys and rolling D and D dice to figure out the time signature of the song. Yeah. He, the average population or the average person doesn't care about that. They want to listen to standard four, four pop number that they can dance to. And turns out it's not that difficult to produce something like that, at least when compared to like learning how to play a Coltrane song or something. The, 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 artistic merit the difficulty the prose all these things they kind of play second fiddle to how big is your platform and how aligned is what you're writing to what the market wants and the problem with a book is if you don't have a platform a book in itself is not super easily shareable or digestible in short bursts and that's kind of what our society runs on Your in terms of like how viral as easily as a tweet. Exactly. Now, maybe you write something super <clears throat> amazing and a publisher picks you up and they're like, okay, this is, this is gold, Jerry. And we're going to put like all of our effort behind this record companies do this. They'll, they'll identify a certain talent and they'll be like, all right, we're going to put a ton of effort into this one person. Um, in fact, there's like a, there's like a big thing in the record in the recording industry where, um, you can get signed, but they sign you with the intention to shelve you. They'll sign you, they'll snatch up the rights to your record and they'll, they'll purposely never release it because you were too close and too similar to Justin Bieber. And they were trying to push Justin Bieber. Wow. That, that happens. That's fun. So, you know. Um, but when we're talking about like, okay, book or blog first, build the blog because it's going to be hard to build an audience no matter what you do. But with a blog, Google's going to pick it up. If you're targeting good keywords, if you're writing articles that people are searching for, you can share that very easily on social media. You can start to build an audience slowly over time and then you can write a book for those people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You'd be building the audience as you wrote it Mm -hmm. rather than hoping that, Hey, I finished this. Everyone notice. Mm-hmm. And then it's not going to work as well. Yeah. Now, this person did not say if they're doing fiction or not, but they said a series of articles with a common theme. I would imagine that's nonfiction. Yeah, I, I the, would assume nonfiction. The cool thing is you could write a book using the articles as a starting point. Maybe, yeah. maybe you don't. Well, you know what? Actually, I was about to say maybe you don't like repackage the articles as a book, but people have done that. Yeah, with I've, I've absolutely a lot of seen success. it done. Um, Eliezer Yudkowsky did that with all of his less wrong articles, packaged it up into a book, and now it's on Amazon. Um, Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income, his original big break was he was keeping a blog with all of his notes for the lead certification exam in architecture, and he just packaged them up as an ebook and sold it. Didn't deceive anybody. It's just like, look, this is what's on the blog, but it's, I've packaged it up. I've made it easier to read. There's a table of yeah, contents. It's in the right order. I'm giving you curation. And a lot of people want that, you know? Yeah. Pick any book off the shelf, especially like a pop side book or something at Barnes and Noble. There's like a series of blog posts or YouTube videos that will tell you the exact same information. A lot of times from the same author. Yeah. <laughs> um, 10 steps to earning awesome grades. Like there, at this point, there's not a lot in that book that's like unique to the book. Just the structure is unique. Mm-hmm. Now, in my case, that book was fairly unique compared to the blog content because I had never really focused on academics when I was blogging. I was, as a student, I was more interested in entrepreneurship and personal finance. So I wrote the book as kind of like a way to force myself to finally get some academic success content on the blog. But now, like 
I've done so many videos about test taking and studying and all that, like there's really very little left in the book that I haven't covered elsewhere. Yeah. But that doesn't stop people from wanting the book anyway, because it is just like this nice curated thing. It kind of also feels a little more official Mm -hmm. if it's in the book. Yeah. And I, I always wonder like why, why are books, why do they feel more official? Gatekeeping. Is it, is it gatekeeping? Is it just tradition? It's definitely, it's definitely, it's gotta be gatekeeping, right? Because this means somebody signed off on it probably. Now, in this case, Which it's is funny, funny because it wasn't. That's not the case for this one. <laughs> nobody that's signed like, off on it. That's like a modern thing. You assume yeah. most books have been signed off on by someone else mm-hmm. who is picky, and that makes you trust it a little more. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, maybe anyone can write a blog, and you don't even know that anything they're saying is true. Yep. No one signed off on it. They could just do buy a domain right now. It's super easy. Mm-hmm. Barely an inconvenience. So yeah, start with a blog. I think. Um, I mean, it's worked out here or Hey, shoot your shot, get an agent, reach out to an agent say, Hey, I've got this idea. What do you think of it? Oh yeah. Especially if you have a connection with an agent that could work, but it's, it does feel like the, the harder, the harder thing to start with. Mm -hmm. I would start with a blog. There's just so much potential good there. You can, you can build an online presence, build an audience, learn a thing or two about, some of the tech stuff a little bit along the way and you're going to develop a ton of content that you could remix into a book. Yeah. And it's, it's never going to, it's never going to hurt you, you know? And I think like the act of publishing on a schedule that also helps too. A lot of people, they start a book, but it's, they're not really like sharing it out. Publishing gives you a chance for extra discipline with an external measurement available. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So last one, how can I force myself to wake up at 4am consistently? Well, um, I guess my question is why do you need to wake up at 4am consistently? Is it because Jocko Willink is doing it on Instagram and you feel guilty? 4am yeah, four, 4 even seems a little, I wake up at 5am now, Yeah, but 4am, that still just feels like nighttime to me, but yeah, that's, that's night. Um, I used to have to do it when oh, I the, worked in the cornfields. As a teenager, oh, I, I would have to get up at 4 a.m. military workout class. That uh, that was a 6 a.m. class, so I would get up at about 5.15 for that. Oh, okay. Um, when I, I was got in nothing school, on the Huskers. During the summers, I would work in the cornfields. Detasslers. And, uh, yeah, detasseling. That's what it was. You take pull the tassel. See the tassel, feel the tassel, pull the tassel. It's not that complicated. That was my boss's everyday motto. Because a lot of people, they just, they'd see the tassel, skip the tassel, get fired. <laughs> That's a lot, not good. a lot of times, uh, especially when I worked my way up to being the, the field manager, I would have to wake up super early because I had to be to the bus before everyone else to do like roll call and get everything prepped. So I would wake up, I think it was 3.30 a.m. Um, that one year so I could be to the bus by 4.30 and then do roll call at 5. But here's the thing. You need... Seven to eight hours of sleep. Maybe even more. Yeah. That is how you're going to be your happiest self, your most productive self. That's how you're going to get the most done. It may not be glamorous on social media to be like, yeah, I get up at 8 a.m. and I go to bed at midnight. But that's still eight hours of sleep. And if you're getting up at 4 a.m., you need to go to bed at 8 p.m. To get the same amount of sleep. There's not a lot of good ways to circumvent that. <laughs> you unless you want to get a lot of negatives that you could have avoided, actually. Yeah. You need the sleep. Polyphasic sleep doesn't work. No, let me let me rephrase that. 
polyphasic sleep in the siesta form where it's like I sleep seven hours a night and then I maybe take an hour nap, two hour nap in the middle of the day. That can work. People do that. But the whole like I'm going to take a 20 minute nap every six hours and I'll, I'll sleep an hour, I'll sleep two hours total. But it's like a secret hack. doesn't work. Yeah, I can't say that it, it seems like it would do much other than make you incompatible with society, which is it, not not great. It does. But uh, I can't go to that movie, guys. I got a nap <clears throat> in the middle of it. Yeah, but like <laughs> the answer the middle, really the middle is of the movie's really boring. Then I'll go. It really is just to wake up, or to go to bed earlier. I mean, I'm I'm waking up at five. Mm-hmm. I get super tired at ten p.m. Now mm-hmm. I go to bed at ten. I can't stay up really past then. I I will pass out. I get very tired at ten now. Yeah, you want to whenever this this applies to a lot of things, not just sleep. But when you want a certain outcome, you should ask what actions can I take where the outcome I want is the natural result, rather than right. how can I force the outcome I want in spite of my actions yeah that second one's not going to work for long term it's you might force it for a week but you're going to fall apart afterward make success the automatic and borderline inevitable result of what you do so go to bed early and you'll probably wake up earlier Mm -hmm. that is that is just it seems like that will obviously happen so it's the easiest answer and that brings us to the tactical parts of this question tactics you have two challenges now Make yourself go to bed on time, which you do with a wind down routine. Yeah, you got to. And I just made a video called the one hour night routine that you and Tony helped with. So go watch that. And then secondly, you have to make yourself get out of bed. Uh, The most effective method I have ever had ever for getting out of bed on time has been an early flight. I will get up. Uh, the cost. <laughs> I'm not going to miss my flight. The cost to not getting up is great. Uh, close runner-ups would be that summer job in the cornfields. If you miss one day, you lose out on a hundred dollar bonus you get at the end of the season. I that's, wasn't about to lose out on a hundred dollars. Pretty just for missing a day. Good strategy on yeah. the boss's on the boss's behalf. My boss Jeff had some good incentives. And he had to because detasseling is a very hard job. And uh, you hire, like, mostly high school, like, teenagers to do it. And a lot of of high school teenagers don't have a lot of work ethic. They just don't. Yeah, you need to come up with creative stuff. I, I would love... I would love to be wrong here. I would love to be like, I'm just being an old curmudgeon who thinks that today's youth is not working hard. That's not where this comes from. This comes from having done detasseling for five years and like seeing 50% of the workforce quit in the first week because walking through cornfields for seven hours a day, pulling tassels is too much for them. That's just, that's just how it is. So knowing that he had some pretty smart incentives I think it was like if you missed one day, you get a $50 bonus. If you miss no days, though, you get a $100 bonus. And if you miss only one day, you also get to go to a pool party at the end of the season, which is cool. He'd like rent out this entire pool in one of the suburbs. Pretty fancy it was strategies. Awesome, you know, and, and it paid pretty well. Like it wasn't like the best paying job ever. But when, when you're 14 or 15 and it's paying like eight bucks an hour, you're not going to get that anywhere else unless you like taught yourself how to code or something and you did web development or something like that. But like working at the grocery store paid pretty much the same, but, uh, the tasseling was great because it was like, all right, this is going to suck, but it's eight hours a day for three weeks. And you could do that and just make a ton of money over the summer. 
yeah. or work like two hour after school shifts and make the same amount of money over an entire school year. So I gladly did it. Um, so yeah, that, that job, uh, the ROTC military class you had mentioned that also got me out of bed. But if you don't have something where it's like, I have to wake up to get to a thing. Maybe you want to have like time in the morning to take an online class or read a book or something. Um, I no longer do my hardcore buffer tweet method. Yeah. We'll have that in the show notes. Check it out. The slash three. What I do now is I just, I take this iPad and I set an alarm on it for like three minutes after my main alarm. And I keep this down in my office. So my main alarm goes off and I'm like, <sighs> I could hit snooze, but then I'm going to hear the iPad go off downstairs and it's going to wake Anna up. I can't do that. I got to get up. Oh, yeah. And getting up, running down the stairs, turning the alarm off. At that point, like, the blood's flowing. I'm good. Yeah, when I wake up these days, it's actually much, much surprisingly easier. I know it seems obvious, but I underestimate the value of water. If I just drink a glass of water Mm. first, most of that grogginess is just immediately gone, even more so than coffee might do. It's Mm -hmm. just the water tells my body it's on now. Don't go back to bed anymore. Yeah, water, sunlight, movement. Get as many of those as you can to wake yourself up. Yeah, and I've even done that. I've, like, had coffee first, and then it didn't do much, and I'm groggy still. Then I drink a full glass of water, and I'm like, I feel better. Mm -hmm. Weird. It's almost like my body was built using one of these things and not using the other. There's water and coffee, though. But, yeah, I I think the caffeine takes a little while to metabolize anyway. Yeah. So I think people who get like the instant perk from coffee, it's just like the ritual. You, you kind of like well, I do like rituals. It. Rituals are pretty cool. Cool sacrificial ones. Dark Lord rise. Altars, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, oh, also, oh, one thing I did for my alarm, similar to what you're doing. My first alarm is a song that I really pleasantly wake up to, mm-hmm. and I'm like, it's a great mood. I am. I'm motivated to wake up today. The latest alarm in a series of alarms will not be a pleasant song. It will be a loud, obnoxious, non-peaceful song. Which is it? The Quiznos subs commercial. I don't even know that commercial. What's what's a, with the puppets that are TV? yelling? Quiznos subs. I don't know that one, but it's it's actually it's um. Usually, I would set it to uh, this super loud and obnoxious like anime song, and it's like I like the song, but it's not my morning vibe. It totally mm. ruins what I'm going for, so I have to avoid it happening. To ruin the beautiful piece I woke with. Okay. I have a recommendation like for a reward people. followed by removing the reward. Okay, so along along these uh, lines, I'm going to recommend um, the song Memphis Will Be Laid to Waste by Norma Jean as your final alarm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, yeah, that, just wake up to that. You're going to be awake. <laughs> there it is. Pro tips. Immediately being woken up by a tortured scream over horrendous guitars. I would be really annoyed laying in bed to hear that after I just heard something that was like a peaceful, like a uh, good thing, and then just ruin that. I'm, I'm going to raise a I don't want it. boom box up to your window. 4 a.m. That's how you're going to get up at 4 a.m. That's not nearly as romantic as most boom boxes to windows are. No. It's a, it's a different vibe. But you know what? There's a girl out there who would love that. She would find it romantic. Well, you need somewhere to just try. You need to try every house and, <laughs> <laughs> until you find her, or until the cops arrest me for <laughs> breaking the noise ordinance. Yeah, one per neighborhood. <laughs> I think there's probably a specific subordinance for blasting deathcore through people's windows <laughs> at 4 a.m. 
<laughs> I'm looking for my soulmate. <laughs> Leave me alone. I just want a girl who really <laughs> likes the first Norma Jean album. Give me a break. Is romance dead? <laughs> okay. So, all right. Those are our cult member questions. Uh, send us more. Uh, either the Inforium on Instagram. That is true. We also have a comment section on the YouTube channel, so feel free to put questions there. Or I am Tom Frankly, or uh, you are Yo Bartholomew on Instagram or Twitter. Yep. I think the best place we get questions is when I make a story on Instagram and I ask for questions there because it's so easy. Then they're all collected. Yeah, I've had success there too, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm not gonna do that often. Like I asked for questions we'll about see. how we'll to build a YouTube you do channel. It more often, I don't know. I asked for questions about how to build a YouTube channel because it's our next episode, and I got a bunch about that. But I also got how do I become a professional bodybuilder, and I got another one called uh, it was it was listed as a I am from Tajikistan, which I still I'm struggling to find the question in that, but I did get well, it. There was also how to how to build bicep like Matt. How to build bicep like Matt, and that's a <laughs> that's a good question. One does not simply build biceps like Matt. <laughs> Well, step one. He actually stole those don't have from other super, people. He does. He, he absorbs <laughs> their power. If he see, if he deems you not minimalist enough, he absorbs your bicep power and leaves you with nothing. Yeah. Which is, ironically, the most minimalist thing you can have. <laughs> I've cured you <laughs> of your maximalist nature. <laughs> I have taken your things. <laughs> that's true. If Matt were truly a minimalist. Oh, that's a really cool minimalist villain idea. <laughs> I robbed you, but I left you with the necessities. You're happier now. <laughs> Rejoice. Rejoice, child. You've been purged. I want this comic. If Matt were truly a minimalist, would he need such big biceps? He takes that hmm? burden to help the others who needed them removed. <laughs> it is a tough burden to own all of your things, but I will take it to I give you happiness. It. I do have four ATVs and six cars, but it's not because I want them. No, I am a minimalist. I am stressed by the very presence. I had to take them, and I must use them. Otherwise, they shall go to waste, which is even worse. There's a really good charlatan opportunity here. (laughs) I love it. Okay, Uh, we're going to end this podcast so we can record the next one. Because we do things in batches sometimes. Um, If you want the show notes for this episode, they're going to be over at theinforium.com slash three, right? Yes, yes, indeed. Cool. So check those out. I know we linked to some things, or I mentioned some things, and then Jeremy will link to them. I didn't link to them. Uh, And you can subscribe if you haven't done so already. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all kinds of other cool things. So go over to theinforium.com and click whichever button your heart desires. I've been listening on Spotify recently. That's fair. It's a good podcast player. It's a good place to listen to stuff. Mm-hmm. Sorry, YouTube there. as well. Um, I still need to change the YouTube URL. This is true. I'm waiting for YouTube to get back to me to see if like they can somehow let me keep the old one. I don't know if it's going to be possible. So what I might have to do, if it's not possible, I may have to start a new channel and get the URL. Yeah, onto that one, the old URL. And I'll have to like ask people to subscribe to it because I think you need a hundred subscribers. Yep. Yep. Pretty sure. And that's then it'll true. just be like a, a video like, hey, this is not the URL anymore. It's it's janky. I don't like it. I I wish we could just do a redirect. I don't like. Getting in touch with YouTube though, even when you have two million subscribers, not not always easy. It does seem like you have to just like angrily tweet at them half the time. But that's how it is. Uh 
If you want to support the show, we are on Apple Podcasts, which has a rating and review system. So ratings and reviews are always appreciated, or you can just share this with a friend. But as always, we appreciate you just hanging out with us and listening to the end of these episodes, which are always lengthier than we anticipate. Every time. So I'm going to go ahead and end this episode, and uh, we will see you in the next one. Stay cute.